Radio Mano Papachango. afternoon ladies and gentlemen from Topanga California which is still not on fire there's a fire near here we're on an evacuation uh, notice or alert or something which is basically like check-in because if the winds shift you could be fucked sort of notice so um, <clears throat> I've got Scarlett Jovanson packed and ready to go I'm ready to be out of here at a moment's notice as long as the roads stay open. But it looks like uh, things are probably not going to go crazy. Uh, they said today's the worst, the, the most high-risk day for fire in Los Angeles history, which I guess is a calculation based on how dry the underbrush is and how strong the winds are and... Uh, how much underbrush there is because it rained a lot last winter. So uh, things are are ready to get real bad here, but they haven't so far. So maybe they won't. I don't know. It's interesting, though, to be sort of living on the edge of Armageddon. You know, it's not happening here, but uh, it's just down the road a little bit. You can definitely smell it. It smells like Armageddon. Um, so... Today's episode is with uh, Dr. Kelly Brogan, who is a psychiatrist based in New York City. Uh, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff about her online if you Google her last name, Brogan, B-R-O-G-A-N. She has been on Rogan's show, the Rogan Brogan show. Um, she's a very, very smart woman uh, who whose career is somewhat similar to Casilda's another very, very smart woman. And Casilda uh, was with me in New York when I met with uh, Kelly. So she joined us as they're both renegade psychiatrists. That seemed appropriate. Um, so you'll hear Casilda chiming in occasionally. Uh, Kelly is someone who went to all the best schools and, you know, jumped through all the hoops, did everything she was supposed to do as a up-and-coming young doctor, ambitious doctor, and uh, then she reached a point where she had a crisis uh, and recognized that she didn't really believe these things, that she had spent so much time and energy learning and that she had been repeating. And I think this is something that I've thought about a lot, a lot over the years, as I, as some of you know, I worked with doctors in Spain for oh, 10 years at least. Um, I was teaching English in hospitals, uh, specializing in medical English, and I was helping them translate and edit their papers for publication in English. And um, so I spent a lot of time in hospitals hanging out with doctors. My wife's a doctor. A lot of my friends are doctors. Uh, and there's a certain kind of person who decides to go to medical school. And there are exceptions, but generally 
the kind of person in high school who decides they're going to be a doctor is a very well-intentioned, um, studious, do what you're told, do your homework, uh, show up on time, brush your teeth, comb your hair, you know, iron your pants, matching socks kind of person. Organized, um, ambitious, and uh, in Spain particularly, I found that people who went into medicine were totally not motivated by money. In the U.S., you get still probably some people who are motivated by money and the you know a sense of job security, um, financial considerations. But certainly, I think that's probably a minority at this point. And uh, in Spain, it's it's virtually nobody. Nobody goes into medicine to make money. Casilda was at the top of her game, and she was making like sixty grand a year or something as a psychiatrist. Uh, yeah, you can make more money if you're a plastic surgeon or if you're in a private practice and specializing in, you know, rich old depressed ladies. Um, but the point is you don't go into medicine in, in Europe to make a lot of money. And so they're admirable people is what I'm saying. They're decent, kind people who work really, really hard and they're motivated by alleviating suffering, which is about, you know, one of the the most decent motivations you can possibly have. The problem with this is that they're obedient. They're people who listen to the teacher and believe what the teacher says. They're not rebels. They're not heretics. They're not people who say, fuck this, this is bullshit. How come they they don't ask those questions? They don't get into the fact, wait a minute, why, why are only the positive results of this research being published? How come we don't hear about the, the, the results that don't confirm the hypothesis? Why is this research being paid for by pharmaceutical companies? Why is there a wing of this medical school being paid for by Pfizer? Or this billionaire family that made their money selling these fucking addictive opiates. Why? What is the structure here? Why are there people wandering around Africa dressed up in doctor outfits selling drugs that the African people don't need but uh, are expired and can't be sold on the European market? Why is there a new drug being introduced exactly when the old drug uh, is no longer under patent protection? And why is this new drug cost 10 times as much? And why is it less effective than the old drug, but we still are being told to prescribe the new drug? This is what happens. This is the reality of medicine. It's much worse in the United States than it is in Spain, but it's the same in Spain. I, I remember I was working with Dr. Rubio in one of the main, I think he's got to be retired by now if he's still alive. So I'm, I'm being reckless in saying his name. Dr. Rubio was one of my first English students. He was the head of the oncology department at this big hospital in Spain. 
I would go in twice a week and uh, we'd go sit in his office. He would close it. He'd tell everybody, okay, my English teacher's here. Don't bother me for an hour. He'd close the door to his office, lock it, open the window <laughs> next to his desk and light up a cigarette. This is the head of the oncology department. And Dr. Ruby and I would hang out. And the first few weeks, you know, he spoke no English at all. And uh, first few weeks, I would, you know, try to get him to deal with English. And, and But it quickly became apparent that he didn't give a shit about learning English. He just wanted to take a break. And uh, having an English teacher was a way for him to take an hour off every twice a week and uh and it was worth the 15 euros or 20 euros or whatever he was paying me like that was nothing to him um and dr ruby and i would sit there and talk in spanish twice a week uh i had plenty of students like that where i was just hang out and talk in spanish and they would pay me anyway uh the point is i remember dr rubio you know he was at the end of his career he'd been around a long time and and i remember him saying to me like man you know, we haven't really improved uh, people's survivability uh, or survival rates at all in the last 30 years. But the prices of the drugs have gone up by a factor of 10. They're no more effective than they were then. The old stuff is the same as the new stuff. They just keep changing. They tweak the molecule when the patent runs out so they can charge more money. And the bureaucracy tells us to use the new stuff because people are being paid off by the pharmaceutical companies. It's a totally corrupt system. And when you look at, there are several papers that I've been uh, reading recently and uh, incorporating into this manuscript I'm working on. You look at what doctors prescribe for other people and then what they prescribe for themselves and their close family members in exactly the same situations, there's a radical difference, a radical difference. Because the doctors know, they know this shit is extremely expensive and does nothing. They know it's better to die three months earlier than to spend those three months in incredible agony and lose your house so that your your widow doesn't even have a fucking place to live. It, it's a scam. Dr. Rubio is also the person you may have heard me tell this story before. He's, he's the guy we were talking about, the difference between American society and Spanish society and the pluses and minuses of each one. And he's the guy who said to me, Chris, the thing about your culture is that Americans have no sense of the ridiculous. And that stuck with me. I'll never forget that because it's so true in the positive and the negative. We, we lack this sort of built-in limit that in other cultures just say, yeah, that can't be. That just, that's too ridiculous. So, you know, that leads to great, genius in some ways you know Jimi hendrix as i've said before could only be american there's no german Jimi hendrix there's no japanese or chinese there will never be a chinese Jimi hendrix uh someone who's just like totally disregards the way things are supposed to be done and does it in a completely idiosyncratic way 
that's something Americans are really fucking good at because we're not walking around with centuries of culture telling us how things need to be done. So there's a freedom that we have that can be liberating and beautiful and and lead to incredible innovation and creativity. But on the other hand, we also descend into absurdity and elect fucking clowns as our president. Um, which leads me to, uh, to the other thing I wanted to talk about before we get into this conversation with Kelly Brogan, which is that today, just uh, an hour or two ago, Al Franken resigned from the Senate, which, as you may, uh, may guess, if you know me, does not make me happy. Uh, I, I think he's probably the most decent and honest person who was in the Senate, and so for him to resign is a problem. And after listening to his resignation speech, I, I went online and I, and I wanted to see, like, okay, what are the charges? What, what have women said, you know, particularly the last one? Because there was a sort of a drip, drip kind of thing. And, and the people who came out and asked him to resign, which were most of the women in the Senate, Essentially, what they were saying is like enough is enough. You know, there are eight women now who have accused him of these things. And, you know, one, two, three, maybe they're lying, but eight, you know, come on. Um, so I looked I looked it up online and what I found was that I think it was three or four of the women were uh, anonymous. So we don't know who they are. We don't know what their political beliefs are. We don't know what sorts of motivations they could have had. The The most egregious um, accusation I saw was that he tried to um, kiss a woman who dodged his lips and then she heard him say to someone else, uh, I'm entitled to it because I'm an entertainer or something like that. So that was an attempted kiss that she avoided. Um, he, uh, one woman, I think, said that he uh, put his hand on her ass when they took a picture together, and um, she, you know he he says he doesn't remember that and, and it didn't do it, whatever. Um, that was the sort of that's the kind of stuff that he was being accused of, like touching a woman in a place she didn't want to be touched or whatever. Um, and I I don't want to say that that's cool. I don't want to say that a man has the right to touch a woman or anyone has a right to touch anyone in ways that make them uncomfortable. We all have a right to personal space. Um, but on the other hand, that shit happens. Every time you get on a crowded bus, a crowded subway, you're rubbing up against people. People are invading your personal space. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying if you're, if you're a woman and you're on the subway that some guy has a right to grab your ass. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that invasions of personal space happen and it's part of daily life. It happens. And that sometimes things that we take as an invasion or we, we observe and, and consider an invasion of personal space uh, is not experienced that way. I mean, I, I was just talking with a friend this morning about how 
careful I need to be in America about touching kids. Because as a human being, if I see a kid fall in front of me, when I'm walking down the sidewalk, my impulse is to reach down and pick up the kid and give him a hug and say, hey, don't worry, you'll be okay, little guy, and, uh, you know, and wipe his tears away. But in America, you, you get fucking arrested for that. A guy was telling me, a friend of mine was telling me recently, he was sitting in a park reading by himself, reading a book, and near where a bunch of kids, like a playground, and someone came over to him and said, um, we're uncomfortable with you being here. And he's like, what? Yeah, you're here. You're a man alone around these kids. We're uncomfortable with that. That's where we are. So the last woman, the last, uh, the straw that broke Al Franken's back, I guess we could say, um, was a woman who wrote an article in The Atlantic that just came out in the last couple of days named Tina Dupi or Dupuy, or I'm not sure, it's D-U-P-U-Y. Um, the headline is, I believe Franken's accusers because he groped me too. And the subheading is the Democratic Party needs to stand with women who have been harassed and not defend the politicians who abuse them. So this came out December 6th. Today, that's yesterday. Today is the 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. And uh, so this appears to have been like this was it. This was when they said enough, enough. Um, enough is enough. Yeah. So here's the thing. I encourage you to read the article. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, um, but because it's, I mean, it's not super long, but it's too long to read you. Uh, here's what happens. Uh, she's at a, a, a party um, with a friend. She saw Franken. She says, I only bug celebrities for pictures when it'll make my foster mom happy. She loves Franken, so I asked to get a picture with him. We posed for the shot. He immediately put his hand on my waist, grabbing a handful of flesh. I froze. Then he squeezed at least twice. That's it. She says, I'd been married for two years at the time. I don't let my husband touch me like that in public because I believe it diminishes me as a professional woman. Al Franken's familiarity was inappropriate and unwanted. It was also quick. He knew exactly what he was doing. She continues, it shrunk me. It's like I was no longer a person, only ornamental. It said, you don't matter, and I do. He wanted to cop a feel, and he demonstrated he didn't need my permission. You come over to a guy, ask him for a picture. He says, sure. You get up next to him. By the way, she's got, his, she's got her hand on his shoulder, so she's got her arm around him. She's tall. She looks like she's about an inch shorter than him. There's a photo. Uh, there's the, the photo here in this article. 
I don't know if you've ever put your arm around someone who has their arm around you, but if you both have your arms around the shoulder, it's, it can be a little like almost like a yoga position. It's a lot easier. One has their arm around the shoulder. The other has their arm around the waist. Whatever. I'm not saying that's any kind of uh, determinative factor here. But what did he do? He said, sure. This very famous guy said, sure, take a picture. Smiles. She puts his arm around him. He puts his arm around her. According to her, he puts his hand on her waist and squeezes at least twice. Let's say he squeezed three times. One, two, three. He squeezed her waist. Now he's no longer a senator. Voting on things like women's rights, the rights of people with mental illness to receive funding, whether or not the United States goes to war, whether or not Donald Trump is impeached, whether or not the military budget continues to grow, whether or not hospitals are funded. He's gone because she said that he put his hand on her, ra- on her waist when she asked for a photo and squeezed at least twice. What the fuck? The United States is a culture dominated by prudes and idiots at this point. It's unbelievable. So I want to take this opportunity to apologize to anyone whose waist I have touched inappropriately over the years. Any shoulder rubs I have offered that were unwanted. Any... um, any compliments, anyone whose eyes I have complimented or hair or posture. uh, I apologize for that. Um, Any looks I may have given, any male gaze that was unwanted. uh, I apologize for that. I apologize for everything. I I just, I'm so, so fucking sorry to take up space and breathe oxygen that someone else could have been breathing. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, I'm going to be on Rogan's show Monday. We'll probably talk about this unless, unless somebody changes things at the last minute. It's Thursday. Uh, We're scheduled to do that Monday. Duncan, Joe and I, The Shrimp Parade reunites, I think it's at 11 a.m. If you want to watch it live, uh, that'll be interesting. Um, Yeah, so that's all I have to say about that. Hopefully I'll be in a better mood by that point, but I doubt it because, you know, Al Franken was the only fucking senator who who made any sense to me. Funny, smart, decent, transparent. Uh, I wanted that guy to be president because he didn't want to be president. And now he's been run out of town because 
He put his hand on her waist and squeezed at least twice. Here come those Santa Ana winds again. Catch you guys later. I'm really excited to, to do this. Thank you for making time. Yes. I know you're busy. I see, you know, how many diplomas on the wall there? It's a very extensive wall. Diplomas are like keys. The more you have, the, the busier you are. <laughs> the more confused you are. Yeah. The more you should probably sell something. Yeah. So uh, let's just jump right into it. I, I'm really interested in, in your trajectory. Like, did you know going into med school that you wanted to be a psychiatrist? Was that something? I did. You did? I did because I went to MIT for college and there uh, they have a suicide problem at MIT and there are many uh, cultural and you know sort of circumstantial reasons for that beyond uh, the mental illness meme. But nonetheless, it is an issue. And I worked a suicide hotline, which was very intense. It was like an up all night uh, live hotline called Nightline. And I was supervised by a psychiatrist, a very you know, dignified, bright, older man. And he just sort of inspired me. And he gave me this impression that we have cracked the code on human behavior. We've figured it out. We know why people are suffering. We know how to help them. And we just need to grant them greater and greater access to the treatments that are available now, avail themselves, you know. And so he was working from the medical model. Yes, very much so. Right. But a very kind man, and he inspired me to become a psychiatrist. I was uh, studying cognitive neuroscience at the time as well, and so it was like this perfect storm of of certainty, you know, this is, there's, I just have to plumb the depths of this knowledge mm -hmm. and I will attain mastery. Yeah. And so that's why I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. Uh, and what year was that, roughly? Oh gosh. Um, I went in 2000. 2000. Huh. Interesting, because that's, I mean, that's after a lot of the sort of questioning. Was it Thomas Saz who wrote, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, there a lot of the sort of Right. Debates about the legitimacy That's of right. psychiatry that were already raging at that point, but he was still sure. He was feeling good about the neurotransmitter, the serotonin, and all that. Right, uh, that. and we had luminaries like Steven Pinker at MIT, and you know there, there was the sort of um, Prozac Nation and right. running on Ritalin, and, and there was almost this sense that the case was closed. Right? Well, there was a little bubble of controversy, mm. but no, 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 no. You know, don't be, don't get your panties in a bunch. Like this is all figured out, and we do, we do actually know that there is a legitimate thing called mental illness. This is how it works. And I remember sitting in neuroscience classes, and there was there was never any indication that this was up for exploration or further debate. Yeah. It was always delivered in the way that, of course, science is always didactically delivered. Hmm. This is the truth, right? But especially medicine. Don't you think medicine is sort of I think medicine and psychology for more so than reasons. physics or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, in physics, it is true. There's a formula. I remember a professor in grad school saying to me in one of my papers, I said somebody had proven something. He said, "There proof only exists in math and physics. 
so interesting. And these things, you demonstrate something, you, you, something is strongly suggestive, but you don't prove anything in psychology or anthropology. Yeah. Stanley Krittner. Yes. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I mean, I have to wonder if it comes from the anointing of physicians as some sort of interlocutor with God, you yeah, know, yeah. that we have put them in costumes, we have taught them a special language, we've put them in temples, and we refuse to acknowledge that this is a, a religion. And so we have, you know, infused this branch of science, that's all it is, yeah. with a very different structure than is available to other branches of, of science. You know, there's that plus, um, the relationship to the pharmaceutical industry, you yeah. know, in which other branches are less commodified, and so there isn't that pressure to pronounce the truth mm -hmm. about the human body and then speak directly to consumers about that. Do you think, I'm thinking of two other factors. One is um, activating the placebo response. Yes. So, you know, wearing a stethoscope even though you never use a stethoscope. Totally, yes. Like, I just you know. like to do that, yeah. Yeah, just to, <laughs> and, and that's legit. You know, I mean, the placebo response is a legitimate response, and Very much so. shamanism functions largely on triggering a healthy placebo response. Um, but also, I, you know, as I said, I have a lot of respect for medical doctors, despite the fact that I agree with both of you in questioning a lot of the sort of fundamental assumptions underlying Western medicine. Um, but as a medical doctor, certainly as a as a surgeon or um, emergency care physician or you know intensive care physician, you're placed in an impossible position. Mm. The the expectations that people have of you are so overwhelming that I kind of feel like that um, uh, that the the uniform or the disguise that you're wearing of infallibility is kind of necessary to to function under that kind of pressure. Does that seem legitimate to you, or am I making Absolutely. excuses? Absolutely, it's a systemic issue. Um, and this is what's led, you know, I have obviously a deep interest in psychiatry, but it's led to an interest in medicine as a greater, you know, discipline. And so epidemics of overdiagnosis and overtreatment, for example, are of great interest to me. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly because, you know, two of the most prevalent ones, whether it's thyroid carcinoma, cancer diagnosis, or breast cancer diagnosis, implicate women specifically, of course, the third uh, is prostate cancer overdiagnosis. And, you know, doctors have been put in the position of wasting taxpayer dollars on unnecessary medical interventions and of actually harming patients. And iatrogenesis is one of the greatest causes, the leading cause of death over AIDS and breast cancer alone, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's a major problem, but they've done so because, they're not bad people. <laughs> yeah. They've done so because the system um, sets up a mandate to do and right. to intervene because yeah. the liability of standing by yeah. uh, is, is far too great. So I have tremendous compassion, not only having, having been a conventional physician myself, but for people who cannot integrate um, science as it emerges because it flies in the face of the 
basis of their logistical day to day. You know, and yeah, and I was too busy know, to keep up with the recent research. It's a and, seventeen year lag, according yeah. to you know, sort of a very uh, powerful study. Seventeen year lag between emerging science and its translation into cr- clinical practice. So yeah. you know, what about those seventeen years of patients? You know, and in twenty thirteen, the National Cancer Institute announced that one point three million women were diagnosed with breast cancer who never had breast cancer uh, because they were diagnosed with something called DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ. And, you know, my mom was treated. In fact, I worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering, you know, one of the great chapels in the world, you know, for for this religion. And um, she was one of those 1.3 million women who were treated totally unnecessarily, you know, for that span of time. My colleagues and I were following the literature. We knew that early intervention was not what it seemed. It didn't yield, you know, greater mm-hmm. outcomes in terms of mortality or right. morbidity, quite the opposite. But it takes that many years for it to really become consensus. Right. Memorial Sloan reminds me of a great book, Lives of a Cell. Have you ever mm, read I that haven't book? read that. It's it was one of the first really popular science books. We had we have it. At home. Yeah, we have it at home. It was Lewis Thomas was his name. He was uh, chief of oncology at Memorial Sloan, and at the end of his career, you know, he was one of these people who I think became a bit of a rebel when he retired. Right. <laughs> It's a little easier to do that. Uh, yeah, but he, he wrote this amazing book. It, it it was around the time of the Gaia hypothesis. Yes, you know, so I'm very familiar with that. Yeah. And I think the, the cover of the book has the Earth with a yeah. membrane around it. So the yeah. Earth is a cell, and you know that was sort of the overriding yeah. idea. But he, I remember one of the chapters he talks about folk remedies for warts, and he talks about how in so many different cultures. There are remedies, you know, like cut a potato in half and, um, you know, bury half out in the backyard under a full moon and rub the other half on the ward. And when you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, the ward's gone. Yes. Or something with garlic and putting it on your head. I don't remember what the whole thing was. Um, but he, uh, he goes through all these different folk remedies and then he says, it's so strange that all of these remedies rely on a subconscious mechanism that distinguishes the wart tissue from the surrounding tissue, eliminates the wart tissue without doing any damage to the surrounding tissue. And that's exactly what we've been trying to do with chemotherapy. And why and are, are incapable of doing with chemotherapy. Yeah. Exactly. And we're just killing people, destroying, wasting money, wasting lives. Why aren't we investigating this very obvious mechanism that we know exists? 100%. Can I tell you about a recent study Please. that was very Please. powerful to me? I'm just writing it up, uh, reporting on it now. Um, it was So I'm very interested in placebo and nocebo literature for the reasons that mm. you're suggesting, which is that once you can get your mindset and your belief behind the intention to heal, it happens. Right. And uh, there is just a wealth of very cool science to support this idea. Not what I was you know, taught in my training, which is placebo is some like nuisance that you need to control for, right? right? right. In fact, it's exactly what we should be studying because mm. it is more effective, uh, especially when you put all of your weight behind it, than, than any uh, actual medical intervention um, that we imagine has this special mechanism. Okay, so these these 
subjects were split, randomized, right, to receive Lexapro 20 milligrams. Lexapro is a very run-of-the-mill SSRI antidepressant. And both groups received 20 milligrams, all the people in the study. But the randomization was between patients who were told, subjects who were told that they were receiving Lexapro. So you are receiving antidepressant that is going to correct your chemical imbalance, et cetera. All of these people were diagnosed with social anxiety. So one of the you know, indications for this kind of an intervention. The other group was given the 20 milligrams of Lexapro, except they were told that they were receiving what is called an active placebo. An active placebo does nothing but has the same side effects, okay? So they were lied to. <laughs> they were called the covert group versus the overt group. And what do you think happened, right? So they get the same treatment, right? Yeah. So this gift from pharma. Uh, and what happened was there was almost a fourfold difference in from I think 17% to something in the high 40s percent response in symptom resolution between the two groups. So almost a fourfold difference, almost four times as many people got better with the Lexapro when they knew they were getting Lexapro than when they were getting Lexapro but thought they weren't. This right? is, this is very meta. There's a lot of... It's powerful, right? Yeah, it's one of the more sophisticated meaning. studies on the subject, and there are a number of others I can reference, but suffice it to say that what you believe is happening yeah. is the greater predictor of what will happen than anything you are taking or doing, whether it's yeah. surgery or pain medication or an antidepressant. Or even recreational drugs. Are you familiar with Andrew Weil? Yes. Yeah. So he's a friend of ours and yes. known him for a well, long time. Well, he's one of the OGs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the original guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, in, in his first book, The Natural Mind, I think it's called, he talks about how he thinks that people get high because they learn to associate cotton mouth and munchies and things like with that. With a feeling of expansion, with, right. yeah. And so they have that expectation, and then it's not even the weed that gets them high, it's the, the associated physiological state. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I ask my patients to stop drinking coffee for a month. And the inevitable question, follow-up question is, well, can I drink decaf, right? And my answer is always no. Why? The caffeine is negligible, you know, if it's there at all. But the answer is no because I believe, I don't have any data or that I would love to know if it exists, but I believe that the conditioned response to the cup of coffee will be activated whether or not you're actually having a coffee if the smell is the same, the taste is the same, and the mm. ritual is the same. Mm. You know, it's, it's Pavlovian level, yeah. uh, you know, sort of um, assumptions, but I think that it's real. Yeah. I see you went to Cornell as well. I'm looking at your wall, another school with suicide issues. Yes, I went there for, for med school, so most of us were considering suicide at the time yeah. here in New York. But uh, oh, you were at I was, yeah, so the med school's uptown um, yeah, um, right, right. at New York Hospital there. But it's, yeah, it's another one. And you know, these sort of pressure cookers, particularly when you have a lot of people coming in from other cultures, um, you know, the transition into the yeah. American mindset. And, and sort of the, the, the floor falling out from beneath your feet in terms of that fabric that is otherwise very present in every other culture. I mean, I, my family's from Italy and every time I go there, 
to, to visit, I feel like my soul remembers what it's missing mm. here in America. Yeah. It's painful, actually. We've lived in Spain. I've lived in Spain for 25 years, and Cassie and I were there for 12, something like that. One, one. Maybe 70, I don't know, yeah. a long time. Long time. Um, and yeah, there's the same sort of cultural mm -hmm. thing. It's so, you go there and everything's slower and more relaxed and it just like feels... richness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, oh, and that leads to another issue with all this. We're talking about placebo and the power of placebo and belief structures and all that. I, I very strongly feel that we live in a society that's pathogenic. I'm sure you agree with that. I agree. Yeah. And that shapes the expectation. So even, you know, the Lexapro, there's a certain power in that word, but then there's also the power mm, reflected inward from the social expectations around the power of pills. I think maybe it was you. Cassie worked in Mozambique for seven years in, yes. the, in the countryside as a physician. Did you tell me the story that? People expect injections. Yes, yes. the ritual of yeah. an injection the, is very yes. powerful. Even if it's yeah. just saline, you have to give Special, them an injection yeah. or they'll be disappointed. Especially the traditional people, not the African right. people. Right. Yes. Isn't that the bodily invasion yeah. of that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an occult, occult ritual. Right. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most um, powerful sociocultural messages that upholds the modern system of medicine, at least in this country, is, which of course bleeds out you know, to the rest of the world, um, is the presumption that suffering, pain, and all of its kissing cousins, right, grief, um, distress, are bad things. They're bad things that we should be yeah. very worried about and we should react quickly because if you don't, something horrible can happen, right? Whereas in most indigenous cultures, which are slowly being snuffed out, off the planet, um, there is a deep regard for the importance of struggle mm. to the refinement of human consciousness and the human experience. Too but shy. you know, when in you, America, you talk like Wade Davis. You know that? No, I don't know what that is. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I, I gave him a hard time. He's, he's an anthropologist and a great writer, but I gave him a hard time because he, he came out with like what you just said was so beautifully articulated. Mm. Sorry, I've derailed you now. No, not at all. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it, you know, it, you just have to think about it for a moment, and I think we all sort of sense that this is true, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in the DSM, so in, in the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is our uh, Bible, mm -hmm. we pick, pick labels out of that and throw them at patients for life. Um, you know, tears, crying, arguably the most human expression, the most mm. signature um, experience of, of humanity <laughs> is considered pathology. So it is one of the symptoms. This is the grief disorder? Is this the new? Well, it's actually tearfulness is one of the criteria for Tearful. major depression, yes. right? Oh, yes. really? And yeah. believe it or not, in the DSM-5, which is the latest iteration of this ever-ballooning, uh, you know, I think it's more than 500 pages at this mm -hmm. point. Um, remember, this is the book that had homosexuality in it up until the 70s, right? Yeah. So it's just a, it's a discussion that um, a group of 
almost exclusively and entirely pharma-funded individuals. And people like Alan Francis have come out, uh, you know, sort of whistleblown theoretically about, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. But nonetheless, in this latest iteration, there was a removal of the bereavement clause. So the mm. bereavement clause is what it sounds like, which is that if you have lost a loved one, right, your child, your spouse of 50 years, or your dog, that you are permitted two weeks to get over it, essentially. No, literally. It's like vacation time. In <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> two weeks and then two sick days. And that's, that's it. it. And that's it. It's you like better, maternity leave, right? Right. Exactly. What happens over Columbus Day? Yeah. Another... <laughs> see if you can plan it. <laughs> yes. See if you can plan that for optimization. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're given two weeks. If you are still struggling to the extent that you are impaired in your daily functioning, so you're not punching the clock on Monday, mm. week three, then you are a candidate for treatment intervention, which of course we all know means a pharmaceutical product. The implication of which is that you have a brain chemical disorder, mm -hmm. that you have an imbalance that requires correcting. Not that you are a human being having a human experience, because we, but now it's codified, you mm -hmm. know, to the extent that right. this is actually almost legislated by the Guild of Psychiatry, and it's such a powerful thing that happened just under our noses, you know, but the messaging that has to support that in our culture is really where the problem is. It's not that they came up with it, it's that we support that then through this, um, assumption that you can't ever really let it fall apart or that you know struggling is is a sign of weakness or it's something you hope to avoid and just get through life you know without ever struggling where in every indigenous culture I don't need to tell you this there is there are initiation rituals why do they do that you know why do they put you know bullet ant gloves on young boys why do they send them out into the you know wilderness for three nights why do women have unmedicated births you know mm -hmm. in the dirt why, do they, why would they do that when they could just simply avoid having these challenges? They do it because there is an embedded value in having a collectively um, contained experience of your own major primal fears so that you can better understand what you're made of and you can better understand who the hell you are. Because today in America, we have no idea who we are and it hurts like hell, you know? Mm. And, and we just are told to ignore that, right. right? So depression is a problem with your, your genes and your brain and otherwise stop looking for what it's about, you know? Because there's nothing to, nothing to see here, mm. right? Because as, as long as it's your brain and your genes, there's nothing to do about it. You're just a victim. And then we, we come together and we coddle the victims, right? So I've been accused of many things, <laughs> one of which is, um, is, is, is shaming people who, who struggle with mental illness and who choose to take medication. Um, and, and it's a meme, I believe, that is perpetuated by pharma trolls, as they're called, but that people then glom onto. And they so say, what is your position? Are there any cases where, where psychoactive medications are called for? No. No, nothing. No nothing. severe depression, ADHD, anxiety. Nothing. So we are on the same level. Yeah. Uh, and you, you feel the same I way? I feel the same way. Yeah. But, you used, but you've changed, right? Because you used to say... <laughs> I changed too, yeah. I used to well, push these. I went to a... With a, severe depression? I went to a school which was like really pro-medication based on a German psychiatry. Yes. Uh, which I, I think I loved it. 
and uh, we were trained with uh, giving drugs and so I got comfortable to manage medication but with time I could see uh-huh. that we're, we're putting only patches we were not treating the cause right but if you can manage uh, medication while it's an emergency actually you can help a lot of psychiatric crises especially when I was working in an emergency mm-hmm. room right so okay I think for some, I mean, I don't dismiss old conventional medicine. And actually, I worked as a generalist for many years, and then I did the psychiatrist because of the 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 sexual behavior research that I, I did. So right. that's why I, I took a psychiatrist. But uh, I think part sometimes some crisis you have to help with some medication. Although I don't. I believe that they cure anything or... It's just to get them through the crisis Especially phase. in a Western kind of social... Uh, social uh, the, our culture. Right. We're not in a forest that we mm. could have some... Elder come over. And yeah. elders and yeah. the, the placebo effect and yeah. the, or help them to grieve. Yeah. Right? Because No, because uh, at least uh, in in Europe, uh, we let people grieving until two months, and then we (laughs) meditate. It used to be too much. (laughs) Two weeks, it's like, wow, it's crazy. Things move faster in America. We heal faster. Right, right. We're We're bionic. We are tougher. Yeah. Yeah. We are bionic, though. I know you're saying that jokingly, but when you were speaking earlier about delegitimizing grieving, delegitimizing tears, and these essentially uniquely human experiences, you could argue. Um, What I was thinking is that the trajectory of civilization, and particularly American culture, is towards shaping the human to the needs of the non-human. In other words, hunter-gatherer societies build the moccasin to fit the, sh- the foot. We push the foot into the shoe that works best, that fits best into the machine. Yes. You know, so, I yes. mean, literally, people are walking around with misshapen feet because... That's correct. It's a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. And so we're shaping, and particularly in America, we're shaping the worker to fit the factory. That's we don't. Right design factories to fit humans. So I'm in the up to my neck in a book right now called Civilized to Death. So all this stuff is, you know. Um, But what I was going to ask you, getting back to your earlier point on rituals and initiations, have you ever heard of a book called Black Elk Speaks? Yes. There's this, I don't know how long it's been since you read it, but there's a beautiful section in there where he has what I think you two would call a psychotic break, or at least what your training would lead Yes, yes. Call a psychotic, he, he has, do you remember it's um, paranoid, he believes he can he can speak with animals, Visions, he, yeah. he can and change vision, the weather, yeah, can you know, change the weather yeah. all this crazy stuff, crazy stuff, and he goes into a coma, he's a teenager, he goes into a coma and has all these visions, comes out of the coma and the shaman of the tribe says to him, describe your vision, so he describes this ornate vision where horsemen riding from the four directions and everyone in the village is dancing in a clockwise motion and all this kind of stuff. And so what the shaman does is he goes out and talks to the people of the village 
and they find four white horses and they bring the boy out and they set him and they enact his vision. Yes. And so it's exactly what you were saying. There's a there's a reverence for the challenge that he's facing and a and a total commitment to supporting him through this difficult transition that he's going through because they know that if he survives it he'll be able to move between worlds at will and therefore be a healer right so it's meaningful meaningful right. yeah and you know to answer your previous question about you know how 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 and why have i gotten to such an extreme perspective on psychotropic medications well i came through the science. I've always been a science nut. I love PubMed.gov. I spend hours every day on there. I love reading abstracts and papers and I love trying to figure out, you know, how the research has arrived to this place. Mm -hmm. um, and the literature that Robert Whitaker, who is an investigative journalist who wrote a book called um, Anatomy of an Epidemic, yes. which I read in 2010, read the literature that he pointed me in the direction of completely changed my life. Now, why did it change my life? It changed my life because I could no longer uphold the assumptions that I had been indoctrinated with during my training, which are that psychiatric medications are effective and that they are safe. Hmm. Those, those two words are the taglines of almost any controversial intervention, right? Whether it's antibiotics, vaccines, statins, you name it. It's safe and effective. The yeah. benefits outweigh the risks. Right. Is that really true? Right. Because if you're only exposed to a keyhole of the literature, of course you can, you know, it's mm. like that parable where there's eight blind men feeling the elephant, the right? elephant right? You need to have a broader scope of what you're actually uh, interpreting. And so his literature, which he's curated and collected, of course, cherry-picked, so to speak, um, is all non-industry funded, mm. important detail, and paints a very different picture about the inefficacy of almost every class of medications, including stimulants, which yes. is methamphetamine. This is speed, okay? So mm. even after two months of stimulants, doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. And what about long-term? The long-term results are what made me put down my prescription pad forever. Because what was I really colluding in, right? Yeah. So, so it was through that portal that I said, hold on a minute, there's more to the story here. And then because I was so committed to that, I had to develop another methodology because I wasn't just going to sit by, which is what they do in naturalistic studies, where they sit by and say, well, let's see what the hell happens if we do nothing. Mm. I don't have the temperament to do that. So I had to figure out what I was going to do. I had already resolved my own autoimmune condition because the universe works that way in the perfect timing for me to then begin to apply these basic practices of self-care and self-healing to my patients. And the outcomes that I began to get for emergency cases, so the sickest people who would come to me because nothing else was working, they've been hospitalized multiple times, they were on five meds, they're on their way to electroconvulsive therapy. So I began to see the sickest women, I believe, largely in this country, who conventional medicine couldn't help. Where were you working at the time? Here. You had right your here. private practice. Yeah, in my private practice. So, so you, did that book provoke this Yes, but it was the perfect timing where I had already had a felt experience yeah. of a kind of healing that I had never been told was possible. You know, I put Hashimoto's thyroiditis into remission and I was like, hold on a minute. I'd only ever learned that this was a chronic condition. I've seen on paper that I put it into complete remission through lifestyle change. 
what is that about? And where did you get the information for the lifestyle change? So I began because I'd only ever been conventionally minded and I never was interested in alternative medicine. I was like a real champion. So you thought for the pharma model. Oh God, completely, completely By dismissive. The way, I have big issues with Steven Pinker. We're not going to talk yeah. about oh, yeah. it now. <laughs> no, yeah. there, there's a whole section in our book yeah. called Professor Pinker Red in Tooth and Claw. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. Well, you see what I was marinating <laughs> in for four years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. trust me. Talk about smug certainty. Trust oh, me, yes. God. It's, um, it's, it's dogma, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, and and so I I went to see a naturopath not because I believed in that but because I didn't I knew what conventional medicine had had to offer and I wasn't signing up for that for my own health mm. right it was good enough for my patients but not mm. for oh, me so much the last so, so, <laughs> About it's this. always through right the, the personal experience that you have a felt shift yes. no one changes their mind like people yes. listening to this who fundamentally have never felt that this kind of healing is possible or that these symptoms have a meaning it's just going to go in one ear and out the other so was your personal health struggle I mean we're, we're telling the story as if there's this this um, convergence but was there, do you think, looking back on it, that there was a level in which your body was telling you, hey, Kelly, you got to rethink this? Oh, 100%. So you, and before yeah. your conscious mind was like, oh, I'm going to read this book, I'm going to start looking at other perspectives, your, your body was saying, stop. Right, but what did I do with that? I drank six cups of coffee a day. I took a beta blocker for my racing heart and anxiety. I would like sample, you know, stimulants when I, from the medicine cabinet on call when I had to stay up all night and mm -hmm. like couldn't otherwise hack it. You know, I papered over the signs so that I could keep functioning. And plus I was living in a, up in my head, you know, because yeah. our education system encourages us exactly. to disembody. Exactly. It encourages us to, to live yeah. up here. Ironically, yes. especially doctors. Yes. yes. Ironically, right? For their own yes. body that doctors have. I mean, even, and it's institutional, this, this stay up for 40 hours at a time. Why the yeah. hell is that part of being a doctor? Yeah. What does that prove? It's not ironic though. It's actually necessary. It's a necessary ingredient to enculturate people um, into this notion that you can be guided by an external authority around matters of your own bodily integrity. Otherwise, it doesn't work, right? Yeah, Otherwise, why would we ever participate? Yeah. And that's yeah. how and why it is a priesthood, because yeah. if, if doctors are not indoctrinated, then they cannot represent this you know this belief system to their patients right. and so that's why the, the doctors who have gone renegade mm -hmm. are the ones who have had a felt lived experience of the untruth that they were indoctrinated with and you know the the, the greatest um, distinction between holistic medicine, if you want to call it that, sort of hate that term on some level, and, and conventional allopathic medicine is that holistic medicine asks why. Why is this happening? Why are you having visions and hallucinations? Yes. Why are you suicidal? You know, why is it that you cannot even speak when you show up at a party? Why is it that you have a panic attack every time you are on a bridge? Um, if we don't ask this question, then we are jamming feet into the pre-fit mold of the shoe. Right. Yeah. If we ask that question, then we are 
endeavoring, daring to understand what this means for this person and how do we respond intelligently? How do we support them through a process that might really suck, okay? A process that might be scary, you know? At any given time, mm -hmm. in my practice, a good 15, 20% of my practice is actively suicidal, okay? This is a part of the deal. And if I don't freak out, and send them to the emergency room and say, oh my God, I'm so worried about you. And I reflect to them that they have within them what is necessary to shed this skin that is asking to be shed, then it transforms. It always does. I have a, like a zero negative outcome practice over a decade, okay? But what I believe, and the, and the only reason I'll respectfully disagree with your perspective on acute care um, usage of medication, just for the patients I interact with, let's say, um, is because when you use medications in acute care setting in psychiatry, because certainly I believe the emergency room has yes. its merits, obviously, yes. you know, if, if I get hit by a bus, like, I'm not going to rely on you to, to mend me. Although, it's... Well, that was a dig on psychiatry, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Well, you know what's funny? I don't know if you ever read um, Mutant Message Down Under, but there is... There, yeah, there is. A, yes, yeah. Australians. Yeah. There, there, there is. You could even take it so deep as to, as to, understand that we have created a belief system around how bones heal, mm. right? So actually, maybe it is possible to never need an emergency room if we just shift our perspective on how healing happens. But that's another conversation. Or we have a different relationship with dying. Yes. Which yeah. informs all of our fears. Yeah. 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 It I, informs I, our fears. I try never to, to get too worried about dying. I think that makes everything it's easier. It's a very healthy perspective and an unusual <laughs> one, right? Because yeah. you have to have some sort of understanding of being held by something greater, like a greater design, a greater right. order. Which is part of the bait and switch of Western society. They take, you know, especially, well, you know, in the religious traditions, there is a sense of the afterlife, but that's very fraught with yes. all sorts of judgment. Punishments. And, oh, you sinned. Did you touch yourself? Oh, right, exactly. You know, um, yeah, or the secular world where it's just, oh, it's just... You, you know, just are warm, yeah, warm, warm bait. Warm bait. Yeah, um, which is what I used anyway, to believe, yeah, by so the way, yeah. Were, but I was saying about the, saying the, the ritual. The right. right, so what I've come to understand is that for, you know, like let's say one of my patients has a severe anxiety and they have a little stash of Ativan at home, what's the big deal? Because I don't prescribe and I haven't for well, almost eight years, ever under any circumstances ever. I mean, I taper people, so I prescribe for that purpose, but my patients know that they're never gonna eat a prescription out of me, so I hold that boundary very clear. So it really empowers them in a way that I don't think I would have been able to understand or appreciate had I not created these conditions. Mm -hmm. And my uh, presumption is that if I were to prescribe for them under severe duress, what message am I sending them? Right? Because we just talked about how the messaging is more important than the actual chemical. It's disempowering. Yes. Right. Yes. I am saying you can't do this mm. alone. You need this help. Right? They can do it. They can do it. And all I need to do is reflect that to them. So it's like, you know, I'm a big home birth advocate, okay? Which came from my, you know, sort of deep dive into the research and understanding that less than 30% of obstetrical practice is actually evidence based. Um, if you have a midwife 
with you at home, and you're already doing something that less than 1% of the population does, okay? And if you have a midwife with you who's saying, oh God, this isn't looking, oh, oh, wait, hold on, wait, this is, are you sure you know what you're, you know? And she's like, in your ear, it's gonna sabotage the whole experience because mm -hmm. it's gonna activate your fear response. Exactly mm -hmm. what you just said, that you're, you've gotten good at quieting, right? Mm -hmm. That fear response. But if you have a midwife who's, who's just at the right moment saying, you've got this, you're doing an amazing job, keep it up, you've got this, I see the end in sight, like it's, it's happening, just think about how good it's gonna feel, right? If you have someone who's just simply reflecting to you your greater capacity, greater than you even think is possible in that moment, what happens? And it works out beautifully. What I was uh, saying, and you, you explained what happened with my daughter. My daughter just uh, had a baby with, in an alternate holistic center, and no drugs involved, nothing. And the midwife was encouraged, just breathing, breathing, breathing. It's like, Mom, I forgot everything on my pain because I was breathing That's and amazing. I had my baby. So simple. Right. Yes. And when I say use any emer uh, med uh, medical uh, drugs for emergency, is actually in a hospital setting. In that setting, because right. in my uh, practice, I actually was w washed out to take all the drugs that would come with other m medical doctors. They right. were four, five, seven, even seven, like humor stabilizers and the depressive and the psychotic, yeah. all that. I would wash out. But if you work in an emergency room at uh, and doing night shift and so on, that's not a, a, a place the context. that you, yeah. the context you is different. Time. It's you very don't relevant. Have time, and yeah. actually, you don't have time to do what I was doing in my practice. I would say, I'm not a biomedical doctor. You are my, your own medical right. doctor. I'm here to help you. I'm your facilitator. So yes. let's work together. Yeah. But and this after that, yeah. that I was having more patients than my colleagues because yeah. they were looking for. Because they're but looking for someone who's exactly. going to help them yes. do it but themselves. But the emergency, yeah. when the setting, the context, everything yeah. is different, actually those kind of patients at that particular moment, they need someone to give something to ease their pain because it's overwhelming well, because the context is of reflective of that level of consciousness Definitely. right Definitely. so so it's an, a really critical so I already said that I believe conventional medicine is a religion so is what I practice mm. this is a belief system I mean mm. we have a screening process for the patients I work with where we basically establish that we have the same religion That's before we work I together to ask you. You, said you have zero <laughs> negative outcome practice is that because you're screening the patients? Because no question. Because nobody cures everybody all the time, right? I, I have such good outcomes because I am, I am going like this. I'm, I'm like sprinkling a little dust and then it happens. They're doing it. They are doing it. It's exactly as you said. I am only the facilitator. Exactly. I don't do anything. All I do is hold the space. Mm -hmm. I create the container yeah. of unrelenting commitment to what I believe they are capable of, mm -hmm. and then they do the work. Right. So yeah, I have tremendous outcomes in my practice, many of which I am publishing, have published in the medical literature and peer-reviewed papers. I have video testimonials on my website of some of the sickest women. You know, I ever, I worked at Bellevue for 10 years and I didn't see women as sick as some of the ones that I've mm. worked with in my practice. But yes, the, mo mm. the criteria that I do not compromise on is a shared mindset because I can throw all manner of 
tools, lifestyle-based tools at someone and it will fall completely flat and actually be quote unquote dangerous because they don't actually believe it's possible. So I work with my uh, understanding of the placebo literature and also I had a mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who, who had outcomes in holistic cancer care that have never been previously documented in, in medical history and he was the one who really drove home to me. Kelly, you're not here to help everyone. Forget that, like lose that ego trip. Right. That's not what you're here for. You are here to help the people who already believe that this is possible. And Definitely. to just merely show yes. them the yes. initial steps, right? So yeah. my goal yeah. is to be done being their doctor so that they can be autonomous. But, you know. It reminds me of a quote I heard a long time ago. Uh, a, a good teacher doesn't convey information she creates a space in which learning is possible. Mm. I love that. Mm, that's yeah. beautiful. Something I'm probably uh, hacking up a bit, but yeah, right. very <laughs> That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's important to recognize, as you know, as you're saying, that this is not for everyone. That everyone has their own journey. And it, you know, when I started to learn about this, all I wanted to do was scream it from the rooftops, convert every one of my friends and family, you know, sort of enter this very judgmental space about the way people are eating and all. Mm. Oh you my know, God. So it was very yeah. tough time for me yeah. Yeah. And, for me too. and depressing for me to, to look around I have two daughters yeah. I, I couldn't believe I brought them into this you know shitty ass yeah. world yes. you know that, that now yes. we're, look how polluted it is glyphosate everywhere and fluoride in the water and this pollution we can't even fix and bioremediating it it was a dark window for me yeah. but once I began to understand that everyone has their journey as long I believe in informed consent as long as everyone has the information that is available they make their own decision around what resonates with their soul, and they should be entitled to practice the medicine that feels right for them. Period. You know. Yeah, that that I know. We uh, are almost out that of time. Fast. I'm, I'm in a psychiatrist's <laughs> office, very aware of the clock. Punctual. Yeah. Um, but this is a really important question that that I, I wanted to wrap up with, and you led right into it, which is, how do you? Um, deal personally with the conundrum of trying to bring health. I, I think of society as like a poisoned river and we're the fish. And, and what you guys are doing is trying to create healthy fish in a poisoned river. Yes. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's admirable and it's beautiful and I'm really glad you're doing it, but it's so hard because those fish, I mean, you've come home, Casilla's come home from uh, work in tears because she's working with someone and they're getting better and she knows she has to release them from the state, you know, the place where they're living back to their family. They're gonna, yeah. be, they're gonna drag them right back to where they right. were because yeah. you can't get in and change the family. And if you could, you can't get in and change the city and you can't change yeah. the culture and you can't change, the diet and it's just like it, it do you ever feel like you're bringing you know sick people in from the street and helping them and then putting them back out in the street where they're just going to get hit by another bus so it's a confusing uh, but very inspiring element of what i have observed um, which is that this kind of personal reclamation of health agency is totally and thoroughly possible, I believe for anyone, but even in this time that we're in, you know, and perhaps because of the time that we're in, I think mm. you might agree, you know, that it feels like we're at this intense 
like fulcrum or yeah. something. Like mm. something is about to give. Like the mm. lid is just busting off, yeah. and yeah. and people are waking up. You yes. know, and not only yes. are they waking up, but it's not like they're, you know. Waking, many of us are enraged. Listen, I spent a lot of years <laughs> feeling quite enraged, um, and I actually think that's an important part of the emancipation process mm -hmm. from the machine. Right? Mm -hmm. is, is that anger just propels you in a different direction? But that there is a kind of physiological rebalancing that, yeah. from my understanding of human physiology, should not be possible. Right? So reversal of things like, you know, um, my, microbiome dysfunction and my, yes. uh, mitochondrial dysfunction and reversal of all manner of autoimmune conditions and these things should not be treatable or, or it shouldn't be possible for, for five decades of abusing your body to yes. be reversed, especially yes. when you throw um, you know, neurodegeneration from psychiatric meds into the mix and mm. all manner of unpredictable injury. The kinds of recoveries that I have witnessed should not be possible, right? But what's interesting is that once you see that they are, which is why I do <laughs> this kind of thing, because all I want, why I wake up every day, <laughs> is to make sure that people know what's possible. Because if you don't know what's possible, you have no idea what to dream for, you're right? You have no idea what to hope for, what to reach mm -hmm. for. And then your beliefs are shrunken in to this small place where you feel limited unnecessarily. But once one person has the experience and, and, and that resonates, sometimes not, you know, social media and all that might be necessary, but, you know, Rupert Sheldrake, for example, has helped us understand the nature of morphic resonance. You don't gotta get on a loudspeaker to announce it. it just in the being, mm. being is more possible. Definitely. How beautiful is that, right? Yeah. So, so this resonant effect, I feel, even in my time of practice, has been accelerating to an extent that yeah. can only be interpreted as some kind of a tipping point that we are arriving at, where things that we cannot envision with our masculine minds, right? That, that paths that do not make linear sense will emerge from the feminine. That's my belief, you know, will emerge yeah. from, and, and by feminine, I don't mean women necessarily, yeah, but by this receptive um, embrace of our connectedness and, and by the quantum, right? So that, that something could be ticking along like this and then all of a sudden there's this massive shift, you know, tectonic shift that we could have never foreseen. Yeah. And that wild unknown is what I think more and more of us are inhabiting on a personal level and embracing on a personal level so that we can all collectively begin to understand that maybe, you know, as poisoned fish in, in a poison river, it might not be the case that we need to filter every, you know, molecule of the river. There might be some solution that we cannot foresee from where we are now, but all we need to do is to sort of recalibrate around these very basic principles of honoring our organism personally. Right? And beginning to act in alignment with the things we know intuitively that have been primarily encoded in us as being critical um, to, to this human experience. And, and begin to sort of all do that in unison, but each as individuals. It's like the great paradox. Yeah. That was so beautiful. I'm just going to end it there. If that's yeah, okay that with you. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Total pleasure. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. 
you enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, if you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight no sorry t speaking dot dot com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some t-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other t-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design t shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out since bennett died the people who took over suredesigntshirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that bennett gave us so be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD, and that's at suredesigntshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at carseyblanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. 
one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day to the ground. 